In this episode of The Ziggler Show, we're talking about succeeding at business and as a winning strategy, investing in and believing in people instead of controlling them as we are in a corporate culture that is so much about control. Well, who better to school us than Charles Koch, who ranks in the top 20 wealthiest people on planet Earth. His company, Koch Industries, is one of America's largest private companies with over 130,000 employees. He should know what he's talking about. Welcome, everyone. I'm Kevin Miller, and this is The Ziggler Show, where our focus is increasing your performance in your personal and professional life, drawing straight from the legacy of one of the most inspiring leaders of our age, Zig Ziggler. Twice per month, I bring you more than an interview, but an authentic interaction between me and a guest who has achieved something profound by building an incredible business that serves people for a greater purpose. I dig in and unearth the ups and downs that led them to their great achievements so you can hear they're just real people who did things you and I can do too. So how do you succeed in business? I mean, the current corporate culture showcases power and control from the top to manage down to the bottom, and it influences even how small businesses structure themselves, and it's not working. Charles Koch is chairman and CEO of Koch Industries, one of the largest privately held American companies. Uh, Forbes cites him as the 15th wealthiest man in the U.S., and he's generally top 20 in the world. Koch Industries, again, has over 130,000 employees, so it's safe to say he has more experience than most of us in this area of top to bottom, or better, he's talking about bottom to top. Charles is an influential philanthropist focused on developing effective solutions to social problems. He founded a nonprofit organization called Stand Together for just this purpose, and its CEO is Brian Hooks. Brian's also the president of Charles Koch Foundation and Charles Koch Institute. They've written a book together called Believe in People, Bottom-Up Solutions for a Top-Down World. It's a message of inclusion and empowerment. They show how every single one of us has a gift. We talk a lot about that in the show, our personal gift that we can use to find fulfillment and build a better society. And they show that by coming together, we can tackle our country's biggest problems and help every person rise. Uh, you can find Charles and Brian at standtogether.org.org and find their book, Believe in People, wherever you get your books. Here are some resources for you, and then we will dig in with Charles and Brian. So studying this book, and for those watching the video, there it is, Believe in People. And obviously there's so much of the message that is about uh, the people, and you get into talking about the institutions of uh, the community, of education, of business, of government. However, as I quickly saw in that, kind of by proxy, the assumption is to start off with the first people we need to believe in is ourselves. And want you to go into a little bit of that, just as far as the personal responsibility and the personal honoring of ourselves as a start to believing in people. Well, what we we find and what what I found in my life. Well, I'll, I'll start with my life. What I found in my life is for me to believe in myself. I had to find my gift, and we believe. And, and I think history proves this, that everyone has a gift. Everyone uh, has something to offer. But uh, so the key is, 
what kind of society do we have a kind of society do we have institutions that will empower people so they can discover and apply that gift in a way that enables them to contribute and succeed and and so i was fortunate at, at a young age to find at least the beginning of my gift or aspects of it but i was lost I I couldn't I didn't know what to do with it how to develop it how to apply it in a way so I could contribute that's what I wanted to contribute because the only way I can believe in myself and that's still true is if I'm contributing I feel I'm I'm worthy I'm contributing and it took me 20 years I was lost struggling around trying to find this and then I found it uh in my case, by uh, discovering there was a such, a such a thing as the principles of human progress. So once I found those, I was turned on. It totally transformed my life. And you say, oh, you've accomplished all this. No, I didn't. It was by discovering these ideas and the history and how they've changed societies, changed the world, changed people's lives and turned people from bitter and not doing much and hopeless to being even social entrepreneurs to now not only wanting, not only transforming themselves, but wanting to transform others and dedicating their lives to it. And so that's that's my story. And, and we see that everywhere. So I don't know if that gets at your question, but that's, that's just the way I internalize it. it. It does. And honestly, it's a bit of a different tangent. I mean, here on the Ziegler show, you know, we're talking to people who I'm going to call an aspiring audience. These are people, they're not tuned into a podcast to listen to entertainment necessarily. I don't know that I'm that entertainment. They're here that entertainment. <laughs> they're here to figure out how to better themselves. And so I'll admit as the host of the show, I haven't put a lot of focus on the institutions, you know, as you, as you would say here. And I almost, there's almost a chicken and the egg aspect here of the individual and believing in themselves and empowering themselves, which you guys talk about that word empowerment is so much in the book and also creating institutions and trying to be a part of the institutions. You know, I'm curious with you, Brian, I mean, you've been working with Charles for a long time. He goes into, as we talked about the other day, to, to write this book, really a culmination of his overall lifetime, you know, mission. Here it is, okay. brings you in to help write this book and not as a ghostwriter, but as a guy who works alongside him uh, in, you know, in your organizations to help people. As you wrote this, what germinated for you? And what was a core principle out of this that maybe not that it was new, but it solidified for you out of this in regards to that believing in people, ourselves and the communities we are a part of and creating? Yeah, yeah, no, you're, you're right. I mean, I've had the chance to work with Charles now for over 20 years, and it's been an incredible experience. And one of the things that, that we've been able to do is work with literally thousands of social entrepreneurs, people that we profile in the book who have faced what would otherwise be insurmountable barriers. Yeah. And somehow they figured out how to overcome them. And in doing so, they brought a whole lot of people forward in our society. And so the, the premise of the book, as you've kind of teased out, is for us to be successful as a society, we need these institutions to be empowering people to realize their potential. If they do that, we're gonna be great come what may. 
But if they don't, we're in big trouble. And so what, what really kind of became crystal clear to me as we were writing this book is the, the universal nature of these principles of human progress that we, we outline in the book. To the extent that the institute, when we say institutions, we mean the things that empower people, things like education, strong communities, businesses that are operating according to these principles and creating value in society, and then good, good public policy. Those institutions, when they empower people to realize their potential, um, they, they, um, they drive progress. And, when, and they do that when they embody these principles of, of basically liberation and empowerment, what we talk about in the book. And, and just uh, one more on, on, your, on your question on, well, is it, is, it, is it individual or is it institutions external? Well, it's both. So what we look at, and, and with the social entrepreneurs, we, work, we look at this as what are the obstacles holding people back? keeping them from realizing their potential and contributing, and, and in many cases, making them negative contributors. They hurt themselves and, or hurt others because they're so frustrated that they're, they're held back and they don't know why. So they're internal and external obstacles, and like an internal obstacle that, that we, we support social engineers to deal with would be addiction. And so, okay, help, how do we help them overcome that? And then an external one, you're stuck in a, in a lousy educational system where you're not learning your gifts, learning how to apply them and succeed and create value for others in a way that's beneficial to you. Well, let me ask you that from a social entrepreneurship. I mean, again, our audience, there's a high majority of Small business owners, we have large business owners, we have entrepreneurs, we have solopreneurs. And so this aspect of social entrepreneurship, using your business to help the community obviously sounds altruistic, but it brings me back. Somebody I've had on the show a couple of times is Dina Dwyer Owens. She uh, was, was CEO of the Dwyer Group. Now it's neighborly. Uh, I think they were a $2 billion you know, company or they were a few years ago. And the interesting thing to talk to her was, is not only is this the right thing to do and it helps our culture, but it actually makes us a lot of money, you know, and to you, Charles, I mean, you've got a company. I don't think anybody here has 130,000 employees in their company necessarily, but are you citing that as well? That not only is this an altruistic thing, but investing in the people actually makes us more profit at the end of the day. Absolutely. Our, how we've succeeded is to what, what I call create virtuous cycles of mutual benefit. And that's a fancy term, uh, maybe, but, but what it means is that first thing we do is understand how we individually in the company, every employee, and how the company, how each of our businesses can create value for others. Yeah. Starting with our customers and our employees, but also our suppliers, our community and society as a whole. So that's our whole focus. And you say, well, that's altruistic. No, it isn't. If we create value for others, they will want us to succeed. They will want to do business with our customers. Our customers and suppliers will want to do business. Our employees get turned on. They get self-actualized. It's what Maslow called Abraham Maslow, who's who's one of my uh, role models, uh, the the famous uh, psychologist of of health, uh, is that what he called synergy. 
And and to, to be to self-actualize, he said, you need to have synergy, which which simply means uh, when you do something for others, when you do something that seems altruistic, it benefits you. Mm-hmm. And when you do something that benefits you to, to benefit you, it it helps others. And so it all merges. And that's what we try to do here. And believe me, it transforms employees' lives. I can't tell you the number of employees who worked here a long time and they they had a better opportunity or they retired who come back to see me or write me and say, I can't tell you how focusing on creating value for others and watching how that benefits me and, and us how that transformed me. He said, now I'm doing it in my community, with my family, even with my religious organization. I'm helping them. I'm helping the the pastor uh, create more value, more help for for his uh, constituency. And so this this is so powerful, this idea of helping people self-actualize and creating synergy. And if everybody would think, every business person would think that, how do I make my employees' lives better? And why do I want to do that? Because I want to get them enthusiastic and the full benefit of their ideas and capabilities. So I want to get them in the right role where they can contribute the most and be turned on. Well, something you said brought me, it was here in well, chapter eight of the book, actually, and I had had this uh, notated out. You said you, had, you were a guest lecturer at MIT's business school, laid out your views of success in business by focusing on how you create value for others, starting with your customers and employees. And you had a student immediately challenge this. And he said, isn't that naive in business? Your focus needs to be on maximizing, maximizing profits. And you responded by asking what's more naive, focusing on creating value for your customers or expecting that they'll pay you if you're not creating value for them. (laughs) It's a great paradigm shift. And then of course, as an employee, I wanna work for a company that's doing more than making money, but actually thinks that they're helping people out there. But yeah, we have, it feels like we we have drawn away from that and it's Especially when we're looking at big corporations, people expect that that's it. It's money is driving it. And yet here you are saying, no, we want to provide value. And again, it pays off. And I want to hear people because we are a self-interested people. I mean, we can't get away from that. It's altruistic. And we need to be. Yeah. We don't want to just sacrifice ourselves and disappear. Right. We want to empower ourselves so we can do more to empower others. But Kevin, you said it's a paradigm shift. And that's the point that we try to make in the book is this is tough stuff, but our our society, in this case, we're talking about business, so often is organized as though this top-down approach is the only way to get things done. Right. And we try to make the case that across society and, and, and definitely in business, we need a paradigm shift. We need to think about empowering people from the bottom up so they can discover new and better ways to serve each other, to solve problems in business and in our society more broadly. Well, and in that, you know, Brian, in, I mean, I'm interested in human behavior and you talk about it here again on the show, we're looking at personal development and, and I think it's, uh, it can get a very individualistic approach and you're saying, Hey, the top down control is not where the magic is. It's, it's a bottom up. 
Yet again, to hold this, not probably not attention is probably not fair, but to hold a balance of you're also calling people to come together for the mutual benefit, the mutual power. So it is a, a union of the individual and the strength of the individual, but also the community. And I feel like that's, again, I'm seeing us fall away. And I know you are too fall away from community. It used to be that we had to have community to survive. We don't now, but you're saying, but if you want to thrive, not survive, you still need to come into community. And I, I see, we, I see us falling away from that. See, there's this false choice out there because of this dominant paradigm, this notion that you have to choose between the individual or the community. Right. And that's just wrong. What, what we try to argue in the book is the best way to find fulfillment as an individual is by serving others in community. Yeah. And the best way to serve your community is to empower individuals to become all that they can be. Right. And so there's this there's complementarity there rather than it being a choice. And if we could embrace that, I mean, it, it, it would be revolutionary. It would change the, the way that we look at solving problems, as we, as we say in the book, across the board. And as we, as we say in the book, this whole thing is a philosophy, not of sacrifice. It's a, it's a philosophy of mutual benefit. Enlightened, as Tocqueville called, enlightened self-interest, and and the way you succeed is by assisting others, by creating this culture in these communities of mutual benefit. Let's let, let's help each other. Won't we all be better off than we're trying to hurt each other? I mean, it seems so obvious, but it's as you say, we're we're going the wrong direction. You are listening to The Ziegler Show in this episode with Charles Koch and Brian Hooks about leading, investing, and believing in people instead of controlling them. Next, Charles goes deeper into the necessity for us to know what our gifts are and how we take those gifts and provide value to the world in our lives and our work. Here are some great resources, then we'll dive back in. I would say if in our demographic, we have a majority of entrepreneurs, I'm going to call them small business. Now, of course, you know, small business, I think is, you know, there's a, there's a huge range, but I'm going to say, we've got a lot of people who are small business, 10 employees or less, a lot with five, you know, five or less there for them. They're in, they may be in survival mode. Hopefully they're in, they're in some abundance, but they may be there. And the idea of helping their customers I think comes into play. Hopefully that's why, or otherwise they wouldn't be here listening as well. Right. And the idea of, of investing in their employees as well. I don't know if the thought goes beyond that very often. How would you broaden their scope beyond just their customers, just their employees? Well, I mean, it goes back to what we said, to believe in other people. You've got to believe in yourself. And the starting point is finding your gift, finding what capability you have that is going to help enable you to create, uh, do things that others will value. Yeah. And, and, and will also be rewarding to you. But that's not just true for an individual. That's true for a business. So the bit, first thing in any business we start, well, before we even start it, we say, okay, do we have the capabilities to create superior value for this group of customers? And then, and then how do we 
create even more value? How do we constantly build capabilities, add new capabilities, improve the ones every day? We, we teach all our employees, whatever you're doing, you may be the best at the world at doing that. And your business may be number one in the world. And we are in a number of businesses. But it's not good enough. Because as Schumpeter taught in, in Creative Destruction, for business people, the ground is constantly crumbling beneath their feet. Well, if that was true in 1942 when he, when he wrote it, yeah. There's an earthquake beneath our feet today with the rate of change and businesses, industries being wiped out and so on and, and companies. And so, uh, so you've got to constantly innovate, improve, and then look for new opportunities and then focus on customers when you create superior value for you are going to reward you. That is customers who 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 believe in mutual benefit rather than okay they're creating more i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to knock them down even more and and which customers are going to be successful in the future right because if they're going out of business and you invest all this in them and they disappear then you're in tough shape right Right. So those are all. And then and then what we've done, that's what I mean by virtuous cycles of mutual benefit. OK, then this enables you to to find new opportunities and those new opportunities then call for adding additional capabilities. And and then you open new opportunities. And that's how we've done what we've done. That's been our philosophy. And so it's constant renewal and opportunity and growth. Get, get to the heart of your question. How do you kind of expand your view beyond your, your customers and your employees? Two concepts that, that I've learned from Charles and we, we go into in the book that I think is really helpful here. Yes. One is time horizon. And the other is the concept of being the preferred partner. And, the, and, they're, and they, they go together. So, Charles, you can, you can expand on this better than I can. But, but briefly, if you're only looking to make a quick buck, <clears throat> you probably don't need to care so much about your suppliers, say or your communities within which you exist. Because if you're just there to smash and grab and get out, right. you're not going to invest in those relationships. But if your time horizon says, hey, we want to be successful over the long term, right? all of a sudden you've got to consider, hey, rather than just trying to make a quick buck, let's make sure that we're the preferred partner for all of the different constituencies that matter to our long-term success. Yeah. And so that vision of mutual benefit expands well beyond you know, the people that you interact with maybe day to day, your employees and your customers, you got to start to consider who else is essential for my long term success and what do I need to do to make sure that they view me as a valued partner. And that, that again, that's one of those things that's just paradigm changing, but makes a huge difference. And, and Charles, I think you'd say it was paid off quite, quite well for, for Coke. Oh, yeah. So yeah. so what what you what you need to look at is the whole value chain. OK, what? What supplies do I need? What raw materials? What energy? Okay, who's the best supplier for me? And it may not be the one who's cheapest, but the one who will work with you to innovate, how to make the value chain more efficient. And so you integrate that all the way from, from your suppliers through your customers and theirs. I mean, because we sell to a lot of retailers, and then we've got to make sure what they're doing creates value for their customers for the consumers who are ultimately our customers. So we work at all of that. 
and our communities. Because if you're in a community and you're not creating value in the community, you're, you're polluting or your employees aren't, aren't participating, uh, then why do they want you there? Right. So, so they're not going to be friendly and try to help you. But if you're creating a lot of value in the community, boy, they will, they will really try to help you. Looking at the, again, coming back to the individual, which admittedly is, is where I you know, gravitate towards here with the Ziggler Show. But looking at that, you have, I mean, you know, Charles, you've got all the, the employees through your companies. And, you know, Brian, I know in working with uh, Stand Together, I mean, you're working with groups. So a lot of times you're speaking to individuals who are not, well, when we look at, so, let's, let's just break down social entrepreneurship. When people hear that, they're going to think of an entrepreneur, a business owner specifically, and you've got a lot of people out here who are part of groups. They are employees. And I know you're calling them to the same thing, but make that, that differentiation of if you are an employee in one of your companies, if you're one of these groups that you're working with, Brian, how do you take that principle, that responsibility and this initiative and be that social entrepreneur, even as an employee in essence? Well, the first thing we do is, 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 or, is have criteria on who we hire. And, and we have, uh, as you saw in the book, we have eight guiding principles, which, which go to what our culture needs to look like. And, uh, and so, uh, so we hire people according to that. And, and I won't get into all that. I'll boil it down to just two things. What we're looking for employees is somebody who's contribution motivated rather than negatively motivated. And then that they have some talent, some gift, and that we need a whole variety of them to do everything we do that will enable us to create value for all our constituencies. And when we have those two, then it's our job to, to get them in a role that fits their gifts. So we don't just hire somebody and say, okay, we got this role, we'd stick them in there. I mean, it's like if I, I, I went to work for an opera company as business manager and they wanted me to also sing tenor. Right. They could give me feedback and training till the end of time and we would be bankrupt. Well, that's what a lot of companies do to people. And so we find that we, we try to, to, to design the role around that person's capability and passion. And then we give them the training, the, teach them the skills. And now with more technology, we give them the technology and the data so they can go make improvements and really be an entrepreneur and, and talk about self-actualizing, which, which just means you, you are becoming the best you can be. And when they feel that, Man, they are turned on. And when I go to a meeting now, because we've, we've really been pushing this with, with additional technology, I mean, the, the improvements, I, I'm hearing at a meeting from first-line employees, are just blowing me away. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it, this is so powerful. If you apply these principles, what I call the principles of human progress. But it's a really important question because, you know, we use this term social entrepreneur. And, and by that, we mean people who, uh, when most other people just see the problems that are holding people back, 
the social entrepreneur sees the problem, but they also see a solution. They see a yeah, better way to yeah. do things. And, and what the book is, it's a call to action to everybody to find the social entrepreneur within them. So business is your passion. Do business uh, as well as you can by, by empowering people, including your employees from the bottom up. If education's your passion, if you're a teacher, if you're a parent, if you're somebody who cares about that, you know, be the social entrepreneur that helps to empower people to find new and better ways to do that and, and across society. And, and we, we tell some just, I, I think, some inspiring stories in the book about people that we've learned these lessons from who are practicing these principles as social entrepreneurs. Well, you do. I mean, the book, of course, the stories in there are incredibly compelling and convicting with the work you guys are doing together and, and individually in your own efforts. And so I get that looking at the culture right now, I'm, I, I want to speak to that a little bit and it's in the book. And we talked about it the other day, uh, when we were catching up about the increase in deaths of despair, that's one that just weighs on me as much as anything, looking at our culture, looking at a time when you would think that we would be the most, uh, we are so abundant that we should also be the most joyful. And yet that's not what's panning out across the board. Now, again, you guys are experienced at where you're implementing these, uh, these things, but we know that people find the most purpose when they are serving others. And you said uh, to that effect a minute ago, Charles, and to do that, they need to know their gifts and their capability. And you talk again about self actualizing mm -hmm. And yet it seems, again, our coming back to our institutions, starting with, well, no, starting with the home and parenting and families, right. and then into the schools, people seem to be less cognizant of any gifts and capability and self-actualization. And that going into these deaths of despair, I don't know how that is not the primary, I mean, really a root issue of the book is you have got to start with understanding yourself and your gifts. And we don't seem to have the institutions that are fostering that. That's right. This, this notion of deaths of despair, of course, it's a, it's a phrase that the Nobel laureate, uh, Sir Angus Deaton, an economist, coined. He was trying to figure out why is life expectancy in the United States and in and, and some other places going down? And yeah. And even before this pandemic, it went down, it, life expectancy went down two years in a row for the first time since the, the last pandemic that, that hit us in 1918. And this doesn't make any sense, as you say, given the opportunity for abundance. And so Deaton tried to understand this, but he's looking at, you know, something like 70,000 people uh, each year die of drug overdoses in this country. Yeah. Put that in perspective, that's more than all of the Americans that died in the Vietnam War over all of the years. Every year that happens. Suicides are up. This is a real, real problem. And it's an indicator, as you say, that people are lost. Yeah. Right? They're looking around and they're feeling like these institutions that are supposed to be empowering me, come what may, are failing me. And 60% and of people in this country report that they feel isolated. A remarkably small number of people feel like they've got somebody, even just one person they can confide in. Yeah. This, is a, this is a crisis of despair in our country. And, and the solutions we think, are to really invest in these institutions such that they believe in people, that they, that they treat people as though they have something to contribute, because they do, and they help them to discover that about themselves, go through that personal transformation. And if we do that at scale, which is we think, we can, we, we think that is absolutely possible if everybody sort of plays their role, we can, we can stop these sorts of things like deaths of despair. We can put people in a position to 
you know, be all they can be and, and realize their potential. And we, my, my wife and I address this very thing in education. Uh, 30 years ago, we started a, a, an organization called Youth Entrepreneurs. And we started it in, in one class in one public high school here in Wichita. And now it's in 40-some states. And, uh, and, and its method is, is, is to teach these students how to be an entrepreneur. So they have to write a business plan. And then the, the ones who do a good job of that are really into it. Then we provide some small capital so they can start that business and, and we help them find what they're good at. And so we go through all these uh, on what's, what's involved in empowering him, getting the, the kids to believe in themselves. Because the problem with most of them, they grew up in areas where no one believed in them. No one believed in anybody. It was all hopeless. And, they, and, and so many of them are transformed with this. That doesn't mean that's their career, this business. They have some success and they learn these tools and values of success and how to create value for others. And, and they're transformed, so they end up going to college, and a lot of them now are great entrepreneurs. I mean, that is so thrilling to see. Yeah. And that's what can be done. But those are just islands in the, the whole K-12 through education system. But it is so powerful. That's why it's grown so much. People see it. Well, I want that in my community. When speaking to that, you talk, of course, going through your individual story, uh, your father, and I'm going to take it into that institution of the family. Uh, again, we, we mentioned it the other day, talking about uh, in the, it's actually page 127 of your book, Individual Success Depends on the Health of Our Communities. And I related that to the Blue Zones. Dan Butner, who has come to sure. fame with the Blue Zones, I love that. Uh, we are such products good and bad of our zones, of our institutions, of our communities, and especially that initially in the family. And so it was interesting to read your story and to think about it as a parent. I'm a parent of a bunch of kids and I am very aware that I have my own, well, hopefully it's a blue zone. It's a zone. It's either blue or it's black, I guess it would be, uh, depending on how I formulate that. But we, again, we're so we have such an individualized society, as you know, we spoke to a minute ago, we're so connected via social media, but we're isolated more than ever. And I feel like your message here of we have got to come back to communities is almost countercultural to the direction that we've gone. And right now, my gosh, you know, we're sitting here, I'd be remiss to not recognize it's January 6th of 2021 amidst the COVID pandemic. We are more isolated than ever. So it's, right. it's perfect timing for the book. I'm not assuming that you guys intended that, but it, it right. is, it is. And yet people don't feel as much in control to be able to do that right now. Yeah. No, that's right. No, I was I was blessed to have the parents uh, I did, and because I mean we were wealthy, not nothing like uh, we are today, but uh, we were wealthy. But we didn't. I didn't grow up that way, as I as I wrote in the book. My father, uh, he was he was tough taskmaster, and he said he told me at an early age. He said, "Son, I want you to amount to something." And 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 the key why I I absorbed it, it took me a, a while, but why I absorbed it is he didn't 
teach me or, or force anything on me that he didn't do himself. For example, he had integrity. He had humility. He treated people with respect. He had strong work ethic. And he was a lifelong learner. Like he would tell me, son, learn everything you can. You never know when it'll come in handy. And so he, he had me working in all my spare time starting at age six. And I was always trying to dodge things and minimize the pain. And so I was always in trouble. And we lived on a farm and an experimental farm. He was he loved to experiment. And so he experimented with various animals on feed, on breeding, all of this. And so I got to milk the cows, shovel the manure, feed them, uh, fix the fences, all of this stuff. And, you know, when you're when you're not even a teenager yet, this is why, why, why is he so mean to me that I figured it out? I mean, because if he hadn't, I would probably be the bum he didn't want to me to be. Well, you know, and looking at the Institute again, I, I think my favorite one, uh, at least sequentially, is the family. It's the most uh, most impacting that we have. So I'll, I'll put that to you, Brian. So you're you're a, a little little uh, later down the road than he is. You've got a daughter. You've got a daughter. When he talks about this, because we look at the adversity, we know so many people who came to success came from literal adversity, or they were at least exposed to it like Charles was. And yet we come here and we're in a time of abundance and you almost have to manifest adversity for your kids. So you've got a daughter. And as you're reading this, how do you provide, how do you look now and say, how am I going to provide adversity to her to give her strength? You know? Well, I think if you asked her, she'd say she's getting plenty of adversity. But, yeah. Okay. Well. But no, I'm, I'm sure we. Uh, I'm sure we can do better. I will tell you. I. I. Um, you know, as I said before, have learned a lot from how do you apply these principles across everything we do. And and one of the things that um, that Charles taught me at, at, at several years ago was it was something that he did with his kids. And I, I don't know if I've told you this, but I've yeah. I've tried to adopt it. Uh, I never go quite as far as Charles because you know you got to aspire to to the <laughs> sure. ideal here. But I do my best. Sure. The um, the notion that uh, so what I do with my with my daughter is every every night. Sometimes we miss a night, but but almost every night we sit around the dinner table, and um, and we got to go around. Me, my wife, and my daughter. We hold ourselves to the same standards. And we have to say, what, what's one thing that we did to help people today? Hmm. And, you know, it's a little thing, but if you do it enough and, you know, she's seven, so it's impressionable age. <laughs> hopefully that's that's helping her to reflect on, you know, our obligation to each other. Uh, and it gives you the chance to sort of make the point, you know, how'd that make you feel? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, so so look, that's not shovel manure and, and fix and fence posts. But, you know, it's it's a really good point that we've got a real obligation here to make sure that we're doing right by uh, by the next generation. Well, what we did, one of the things I did with our, our children, the, the school had what they call the five things, love, courage, faith, honor, and loyalty. And so starting the first grade at dinner, every night I would have each, each of the two children describe how they exemplified one of these values every night. I mean, and that was shocking to them. I mean, they would cry, they would be so frustrated. And so not, neither one ever wanted to sit next to me. They both wanted to be over next to mom. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, then they got into it. And boy, they have not forgotten that. Because I didn't lecture them. I asked them to just, you pick any one 
but you know, you need to be working on these things. And, and then Sunday evening, we would have a session. I would take them back to the library, the two of them, and then I'd play a tape of, of somebody. It may have been a philosopher, Aristotle. It may have been on economics, psychology, something. And we'd only play it 10 minutes because they were young short attention span, yeah. and then we'd discuss it. And they believe me, they they didn't seem to get it, or my daughter did. My son was, wasn't was so interested, but boy, he's, it sunk in. So those kind of things, and once again, it wasn't anything. These were all things I was committed to, and I was learning myself. And so so they could see it was real. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I have a childhood of... When I needed an attitude adjustment, I would uh, be sent to do a physical activity or I'd have to listen to a Zig Ziglar tape, of which you'd think I was scarred and never wanted to hear the guy again. <laughs> and here I am as the voice uh, for Zig Ziglar. You know, That's when when you I want you to I do want you because you talk about it so much in the book, you talk about this, uh, that we are moving towards a two tiered system. Uh, break that down for the audience and let them understand what you are seeing from a, uh, from, from a high level as you are looking at these issues, as you are looking at solutions. Uh, tell us a little bit about that two-tiered system. Well, it's, uh, it's all of these institutions or elements, large elements of all four of these sets of institutions are top-down. Yeah. And what that does is, 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 create obstacles for people who start with little or nothing to, to realize their potential and succeed. And so we have that growing disparity between those who had the advantages I did and others had uh, who are doing better and those who have these obstacles that are holding them back. And, and they, they can be regulatory obstacles, they can be educational obstacles, they can be troubled community obstacles, they can be uh, family uh, parenting obstacles, all sorts of, of, of things. And, and that's why we have so many people who aren't contribution motivated. They've right. given up. Right. And so they're bitter about it, and in many ways, rightly so, because they're through through no fault of their own, they're stuck behind and it looks hopeless. So what we're trying to do is, is work with social entrepreneurs. We don't have all the answers, so we try to find social entrepreneurs on each problem who have shown that they can over, help people overcome these and then we support them. And, and it's, it's what I, I, I have a narrow range of abilities. So I need to partner with people who are good at the things I'm not. So I'm looking for partners who we share vision and values and have complementary capabilities. And that's what we have with these social entrepreneurs. So we help them to organize better and stuff, but on, on their talent and their expertise on really helping people overcome obstacles, we rely on them. Give you a clear example of where this tier, tier, two-tiered society uh, is evident. There's a group out of uh, Dallas that we work with. We've been working with them now for several years. They're a phenomenal organization. They're called Cafe Momentum. We talk about them in the book. Yeah. It's a restaurant that employs kids that are coming out of the juvenile justice system. Now, these are kids that have made mistakes in their lives, but they're kids. 
And if you go into the juvenile justice system in Dallas, uh, 50% of the kids that get out will be back in jail within 12 months. Hmm. There's a name that the guards, the people who work in the criminal justice, in the, in the juvenile justice system have for these kids once they get in. They call them throwaway kids. Yeah. Throwaway kids. Wow. I mean, that says all you need. It's the opposite of this believing in people. And they're not throwaway kids. They're kids that have made mistakes. They're kids that need to go through this process of discovering who they are, find a way to believe in themselves. So Cafe Momentum's led by this guy, Chad Hauser. He is a social entrepreneur, phenomenal chef. He's one of the best chefs in Dallas. Could have done whatever he wanted to. He chose to do this because this is his passion. He employs these kids uh, for, a, for a year in a restaurant. And if anybody I'm, that's watching this, I've, I've worked in a restaurant. You learn a lot yeah. through working in a restaurant. Yeah. And one of the things that these kids learn is that they can contribute, that they've got skills that other people value. And so when you go and you eat in this restaurant, you interact with these kids, you see the passion and the, and the ability they've got. The last thing in the world you would think of these kids is that they're throwaway kids, yeah. right? Kids that go through the pro pro program at, at uh, Cafe Momentum, 85% uh, of them never go back wow. to the criminal justice system. So that, Chad is helping to move beyond this two-tiered society, right? Those kids now will have a shot at being all that they can be. And there's hundreds of social entrepreneurs like that that we work with in any given year. And we think the more that people can get inspired, to, it doesn't have to be start a new organization. Do a little bit. Just do one thing every day to help empower other people. And we, we're going to see a major change in, in this personal transformation that we enable in people. And ultimately, that's going to spill over into society and make it, make it a better place. See, and Chad, and Chad, the starting point, going back to what we were discussing earlier, the starting point with Chad when he finds one of these kids and 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 they want to work with him, he says, "Okay, let's. Here's where I, we start. I believe in you. Yeah. I believe you have a gift and contribute. And so we're going to work together to find that, and we're going to make you successful." Wow! Most of these kids have never had anybody tell them they believed in them. Yeah. It was all that they were worthless and hopeless. Well, and to Chad and that story and so many of the others, I appreciated something that you put out in regard to, you know, the obstacles that people faced and where we can help. I think a lot of people who get the idea, who hear this message say, yeah, okay, I do. I do want to help. I want to help uh, my community. I want to help become or be a part of an institution that's going to help people, but where? And I appreciate you saying the best places to start or, or your most equipped to help the problem closest to you. That's right. That's that right. You know, even recently, uh, you know, in this past year, we had a big issue with race, with racial relations and racial tension and whatnot. And that was a question that came up to a lot of, I think, white males, American males. And I asked the question myself, I live up in a small town in Colorado. How do I help this issue? And thanks to my brother who pointed out, he says, Hey, the thing that use what you've got, you've got a platform. So give voice to people who are marginalized over here, man, that was simple, but I wasn't able to see that problem how I could extrapolate that next to me. Now, you know, again, that, that may, that's a, a bigger issue, but speak to that too, because your stories are all people who took a problem that was right next to them. Not always that they were a part of all often it was, but to say it seemed very localized, I think is my point. Well, yeah. I mean, one of the things we point out in the book is just because we have big problems in our, our country and we do doesn't mean that they require in every case, big solutions, right? You, you often, you often, 
you think about the war on poverty, huge solution, right, to a big problem, but it hasn't made a difference because it's not practicing some of these principles. It's not actually empowering those that are closest to the problem. You know, we've had 60 years of a war on poverty. The poverty rate hasn't budged in our country. Mm -hmm. We support an organization called Family Independence Initiative, which we also talk about in the book. Small group out of Oakland, California, their whole way of doing things is they empower families in poverty to come together in community to help each other to lift each other out of poverty, lift themselves out of poverty. And Family Independence Initiative does this, a relatively small amount of money, about $3,500 over a couple of years. But they do it by creating this social capital that's so important to anybody, anybody's success. Yeah. And the families that work with Family Independence Initiative, um, if they stay with them for a couple of years, their incomes increase on average 27% in that time. Wow. Huge, 27% relative to this big top-down approach that seems like it should work, right? Poverty is a big problem, war on poverty is a big solution. Turns out what happens uh, when you do that is you, you miss all of what the nuance, all of what's important about actually the, the personal knowledge that's involved in solving these problems. When you empower a small group like Family Independence Initiative, who's closest to these problems, you get extraordinary results. Yeah. You know, a good, again, coming back to the individual, because we have people here who are trying to improve themselves. They are wanting to be responsible. They want to have an impact here. One of the points that you come back to over and over and over, and you guys frame it as the North Star, which in the, the Zig Ziglar world is having a goal. What is that purpose? Discovering that, taking that gift and saying, where do I want to apply it? Every story that you showcase, I think you also talk about, and here's where this person discovered their North Star, and that's what keeps them going. So again, coming back to that, you know, the, the, the illnesses of despair and whatnot, that people don't know their gifts, they don't know their capabilities, and they haven't developed a North Star, the power of knowing, well, I'll let you guys define that North Star and the power that you see that the necessity, I would say, for those trying to make an impact positively. Well, my my overall North Star for what what we're trying to do in, in stand together is move, move our country toward a uh, more fully practicing equal rights and mutual benefit where people succeed by assisting one another and everyone has the opportunity to realize their potential. Now, what that so what my North Star every day, what gets me going, why at 85 I'm working as harder, harder than ever, is, is to contribute toward that North Star. Of course, that's that's ideal. We'll never have a perfect society where all this is perfect. So I'm just if we could just start moving in that direction rather than away from it. That would be fabulous. And we see more and more examples of, of this, of people who are empowered, uh, people who have opportunities that never thought they would and, and are contributing and people helping each other rather than trying to hurt each other. Uh, so, so that's my North Star, but everyone needs a, a North Star and it's, it has to be something that gives them purpose and meaning. So it can't just be, oh, I want to make more money. That's my North Star. Or I want to get vengeance against these people who have, have hurt me. I mean, I, I thank Viktor Frankl, who was uh, 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 
a, a psychiatrist that lived through a death camp in in uh, Germany, uh, or if he was from Austria, what he put it this way: he said, "Ever he said the problem today is ever more people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for." I think that sums it up pretty well. How do you get meaning and purpose in your life so you can wake up every day charged up? Gosh, I want to I advance that. I'll feel good about myself. I'll believe in myself if I can do that. To put it, put it in just real plain language, as, as, as you often say, you know, if, you, if uh, you don't care where you're going, then any path will do. Right. If you don't know where you're going, then any path will do. And so, you know, really taking some time to think about what is my North Star, you know, at least for us, that's, that's been extraordinarily helpful in making some pretty big decisions about what we should do. And in your work with Stand Together, where you're working with organizations, often spearheaded by specific individuals, you know, again, we come back to purpose. Where do people find purpose? And my experience, and I'll ask you if yours is the same, is that, well, just like Charles said, it's not the purpose of, hey, what can I do to help myself? It is yeah. finding that North Star, that purpose to help others. And you've seen that. That's what has pulled people out of really hard circumstances. And now is their North Star and where they're finding fulfillment is, again, helping other people. That seems, to, again, that's the thread of the book. Yeah, yeah, and and, and and the notion again that, that somehow you've got to sacrifice yourself in order to do that is just right, wrong. Right. Right. The two the two reinforce each other. And so yeah, and that's the beauty of uh, that's the beauty of the opportunity that we've got as a society. You know, I mean, the, the, the 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 quest that we're on, right, is to find the better way for people to live well together. Yeah. And that's what society is. And so, you know, if we practice these principles we got a lot of challenges in our country right now, a lot of challenges, you know, with your, your listeners, with their businesses and all of that. But if we focus on that, we're going to we're going to find the ways forward. Yeah. I'd say the, the secret in, in having the right North Star is something that fits your gift, something that turns you on. If you say, oh, that'd be nice and I can go do that, but you're not getting results or it doesn't fulfill you. I mean, it's what uh, Maslow said, if you are not fully developing your capacity and realizing your potential, fulfilling your gift, you, you may be successful externally, but you will be deeply unhappy your whole life. Yeah. So you've got to find, you've got to, you, this, finding this North Star, which, as I said, took me 20 years uh, to, to find from the time I, I knew I needed it, uh, uh, is not easy. It requires effort, time, and trial and error. Hmm. And there's so many people, they have a job for many years, or like Chad Hauser. He's a great, one of the top restaurants in Dallas, and God, that ought to be fulfilling. No, it wasn't. I've got to go find a way to use this, my gift, for having running a great restaurant that people will want to use to help others. And he found it. And he is so turned on. He's the happiest he's ever been. Yeah. That, uh, that testimonial and the other ones in the book are 
probably the most inspiring thing that we could offer. Uh, thank you guys for the work that you do in your businesses and the organization. And I appreciate you coming out with this book. That's why you're here. I wanted people to hear it because this is the foundation of all this personal and business development is finding, well, to put it right there, the North star. So thank you. Thanks for the time to be here and for what you're doing. Thanks a lot for having thanks, us. Thanks. Thanks. Well, appreciate, appreciate it. Appreciate it. Friends, this really is an important discussion. Investing in people instead of controlling them. Again, even as it's the right thing to do, it's just the most profitable. Big Corp has taken a stance of control because it's initially more scalable than personal relationships. Initially, not long term. Again, you can find Charles and Brian at standtogether.org and find their book, Believe in People, wherever you get your books. Coming up in episode 856, we hear from Zig Ziglar on more than customer service, but customer satisfaction. And from his message, I asked the Ziglar audience, what do you do to create customer or client loyalty? And what do other businesses do to earn your loyalty? Well, Tom Ziglar and I read through the comments and we gave a class ultimately on customer service. Highlighted with this reality, providing a perfect product or service is merely meeting the customer's hoped for expectations. It's not not enough to create loyalty and referrals. You must deliver more than expected. If you have a product or service, I really encourage you to check this show out. Our marketplace is sorely lacking in businesses that offer anything that creates loyalty, but it's just not that hard. Till then, thank you for letting me walk with you as we inspire our true performance together.